Thank you for being here. I acknowledge that the city of Hamilton, where I record this podcast, is situated upon the traditional First Nations territories of the Erie, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas, and the Chonodon of the so-called neutral tribes. Hamilton is also directly adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which extends between Montreal and Fort Erie. It was an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe. Hamilton is home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and this land acknowledgement is a small gesture to recognize the rich history of this land, and so that I can better understand my role as a settler, as well as a neighbor, partner, and caretaker. I stand in solidarity with all those that fight for justice on behalf of the murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, LGBTQ+, and two-spirited people. I grieve the generational trauma created by the residential school system and the 60s scoop. I grieve the children and childhoods lost through ignorance and racism. Miigwech. Thank you. Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. Ken Taylor is someone I met about eight years ago when we worked together on an event called the Canadian Cybersecurity Forum. Like many in the cybersecurity space, he's ex-military and often speaks in acronyms. He's also one of the loveliest people I know, always respectful. And he used to call me ma'am. What's not to love? (laughs) Ken, like many in our military, came home changed by his experiences. But in reality, his story starts much earlier. I'm truly honored to have this conversation. Thank you for being here. This is episode 38. You have a lovely radio voice already, so there you go. Yes, I was born with that. I, th- I came out of the womb like that, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Lucky you. I have a short intro for you. Please feel free to correct me on anything that I might might miss or that I got that I got wrong in putting this together. Ken Taylor, you're a dad, husband, and lover of all things created or derived by humanity. <laughs> like your father before you, you joined the military at 18 and spent almost 13 years serving before leaving due to a career-ending injury, both physical and mental. After the military, You transitioned into the technology world through years of education and a mission-driven mindset. You were an executive at two publicly traded companies before leaving to become a part of a small team that created three cyber-related security companies out of Silicon Valley. At the same time, you led a global cybercrime alliance for the Americas for seven years, backed by the UK Prime Minister. In the last five years, you landed in the venture capital community, creating a cybersecurity fund focused especially on Canadian companies. And of course, we met through your work in the cybersecurity field, once again, working to keep Canadians and our allies safe. Welcome to the arena, Ken. Morning, Linda, and thank you. Thank you. I was looking forward to having this conversation and reuniting with you. It's been a number of years, as we were talking earlier, back to 2018, the last time we actually saw each other. And when I was putting this podcast together and thinking about who I might like to talk to, you were definitely 
on the list of people that I wanted to reach out to. When I think about the arena and entering into the arena, I've often talked about how courage is on a spectrum. And many of the people that I speak to don't see themselves as being courageous and how first responders and soldiers like yourself are are at the far end, people who run toward the bullets, run toward the danger. And then everyone else falls on the spectrum, whether they've done big things in their lives or things like, like I did where they decided to make some changes. So for this conversation, I certainly wanted to talk to you about, I don't know how much we'll get into your experiences of being in the military, but certainly what you've had to go through since that part of your career and how you use that to do the work that you're doing now and continuing to keep Canadians safe through your work in the cybersecurity field. So welcome to the arena and uh, thank you. Thank you, Linda. And it's fitting that we use the word arena, Mm. whether it be from a competitive perspective and the business side, the sporting side, the arena of life, it's all encompassing. I am at this stage in my life able to enter and I move in a direction where although I believed I had no fear as a young man, especially when I was serving in the military and playing sports at the highest level, I realized that ultimately when I think about living a courageous life, as you've talked about to to so many others in your interviews, I think for me, living a courageous life was always around confronting fear Mm -hmm. and leaving for so long that I had no fear. The opposite is actually true. We all live by fear. And I think it ultimately underpins the way that we determine our success on how we look at ourselves. And I liken it to three key things for me when I look at Courageous Life, because it is about confronting fear. That's how I define it. And I Mm -hmm. look at it as the first one is really recognizing and acknowledge that fears exist. And the second one is having that desire to identify what those fears are and having the desire to change from a core perspective, a behavioral perspective, your behaviors, we can change. People often say that you can't change a person. I disagree. I, I think that we can change our behaviors and it's proven day in and day out by people around the world. And when we change those behaviors, ultimately, if they are with a plan and a purpose, and in my case, the third pillar is confronting those fears. And I and I think that's the differentiator. We all know there's fear that exists. We all know that it drives humanity. We can identify what those are, but so few are willing to confront them and not just confront them, but then get help to do that and do that with a professional. Because if you liken it to sports, when our kids are growing up, they get an opportunity, hopefully, to be exposed to some type of sport where they are. They learn community, they learn team, etc. But the sport is always surrounded with people that train them. There are the dad and mom coaches. There are all types of people. There's always somebody there that's training us and teaching us, just like in education. And yet we only now in the last five years have really started to understand the importance of working with a professional to train ourselves from a fear perspective, from a mental health perspective. We focused Mm -hmm. on our existence on physical. If I think of the military was always about physical, especially where I was in the infantry side. And yet there was no work whatsoever on the mental side. And ultimately what takes 
the greatest toll on all of us, not just soldiers, but everybody in, in life is the mental health. And so if we were training our children from a physical and a mental health perspective, as I'm doing today with my, my daughter, we'll be better humans. Courage is really a way of living. I don't think courage is defined by an act. I believe it's a learned behavior. And as we learn our trade craft, whatever that may be, it gives us confidence and allows us to propel ourselves forward. And then it is about a way of living. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because one of the things around fear that I've learned through education, fear is, a, is based on response. It's ingrained in us from inception as human beings, right? It starts with the fundamental uh, human fear that we all have, which is death. <laughs> and there's a fascinating book. If, you, if somebody said to me, what are the top three books in the world that you would recommend to someone who just landed on this planet? The very first book I would tell them to read, it's called The Denial of Death. It's by Ernest Becker. And hmm. it explains in great detail through science all about death and how we as human beings from the moment we're born intuitively know that we're going to die. And there underpins the, the pillar of fear. And, and so it's fascinating as I've gotten into this stage in my life where I'm so in tune with trying to do the right things as a father and as a husband and as a, a person within my community and learning. And yet it all goes back to when we started in regards to when we were born in the, and fear driven around the inevitable, which is death. Take me back to your childhood. What was dinner yeah. conversation like in, in your household? Your father was, was in the military. Where did that start for you in terms of that fearlessness that you had perhaps when you decided to sign up? It's a great segue from the belief of having no fear to realizing fear. And I realized fear within the first three months of my father passing away when I was young. My father passed away when I was seven. He was, as I mentioned, he was in the military. He was a fighter pilot. He came from a farming background and for me as a child, when my father passed away as a seven-year-old, as we all know, the evolution of the brain isn't there to really comprehend or understand what death is. But quickly, I started to understand from the behaviors around me, specifically my mother, that you know he wasn't coming back. And the roles in the home started to change with my sister and myself and my mom because we had lived on a very large farm. And almost immediately, within a month, my mother decided to sell that farm. There was no way she could manage it. Mm. And moving closer to her family. And as that period transitioned for my mother from grief, and definitely more for her, because when you're younger, children don't often really recognize or understand what's happening when it comes to the finality of death. But it became apparent to me pretty quick within about six months that the loss of my father had such an effect on me mm. and my sister and all of us. And yet, again, too young to understand that the best things that we could have been doing as a family were communicating and talking to each other about how we feel, etc. And we didn't do those things. And that's no fault of anybody. On the contrary, I think like anything 
humanity as a whole in the 70s was not talking about mental health. And yet the very problems that we have today still existed then. We just weren't educated in that way. But it did determine or set forth a course for me as how I dealt with death. And within a year and a half of my father passing away, I lost one of my closest friends as a child. Wow. So at nine years old, my second experience with death was much more profound because now I was almost nine years old and and it was a strange occurrence and it was at a birthday party. He fell down the stairs and he seemed to be fine and the next day he passed away. And when you talk about childhood, people often don't understand until you get help and work with a psychologist, as I've been fortunate enough to do, that our experience as children ultimately underpin our behaviors and who we are. And when I was 12, my second best friend passed away and he drowned. And so for me, over a period of about five years, I'd been handed, as I often say, not jokingly, I say it in all seriousness, the gift of finality. And yet I didn't have the mental health professionals or the ability to communicate how I was feeling in a way that I do now on a regular basis with my family and with my daughter and work with a psychologist and all those things. So we didn't have those tools. Therefore, the effect on my sister, my mother, myself, it was profound. But it set forth the course for me on the fearlessness path because I believed after that, that the reality was death will be at my doorstep whenever it wants to be. And the only thing that I can do is wake up and tackle the next 24 hours. And I approached my life for about 30 years that same way. And behind the scenes, my father's family had all died of heart attacks between 32 and 44 years old. So no son knew their father since as far back as we could trace it. So grandfather, great-grandfather, etc. And so there was that piece of me that always understood that this was around the corner and that I better enjoy my life and mm-hmm. do the best that I can do. And yeah, the childhood piece, the conversations around the table, they really didn't happen more due to circumstance. My mother all of a sudden had to go get a job and work 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And my sister and I would go to school and come home and get supper ready and do your homework. So those conversations weren't one that would be reflective of what they are in my life today, where th- those opportunities just to even sit down and have conversations are real. But for me as a kid, that wasn't there. I've never been a person that looks at it and says, poor me. On the contrary, I look at it and say, that's what I was given. It helped shape who I am today, both good and bad, right? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know any of this story. So I'm like sitting here in shock listening to how death has been a companion, basically. It's so present in your life. And as you move through high school, how did the military enter into your thinking as a choice of career? Again, I, I believe that when I look at the scenario now and understand fully that fear was propelling my behavior, And I will give you an example in the sense of I was very into sports, always Mm -hmm. have, and at at a high level too. 
competitively playing triple-A hockey, basketball. And um, But when I look at those things, I look at them as an adult in a very different way. And again, through the help of working with a psychologist for years and understanding my story, I use those as an avenue to calm myself because fear was driving my behavior. I couldn't communicate in the way in which I have been able to do with a professional at those times. That just simply wasn't who my mother was. And no, again, no fault of hers, but the reality is that if a child is confronted with that type, my sister included, with those types of experiences and had the help of a psychologist at that time, it would profoundly shape them differently. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that. And so therefore I use sport as, as medicine. And if we think of what, what adults do, they use drugs as medicine to mask, right? To go to escape for a few hours away from that fear, from whatever it is that hurts inside. And so for me, sports was that. And so the military, to your point, was always in the front of my compass. It was north. I knew I was going there. Mm. From the moment that I can remember sitting on my father's shoulders after him coming home from flying somewhere, and as as I mentioned, he was a fighter pilot, that was a big part of the memories that I have of my father, and he became a commercial pilot at the end before he passed away. So I always knew I was going there, but I was going there because I thought that is the right thing to do to our country. And it felt, even though I hadn't experienced it yet, it felt like the place that I could find a home because I couldn't find a home in society during those tumultuous years as a teenager because I was running and I was using sports to escape the reality of what life would be for me moving forward. And I had no idea, other than I was very good at math, I had no idea where to go and what to do other than the military was pointing right at me every day. And I thought, that's where I belong. I'm going to go there. And and there's an element of being an adrenaline junkie. Absolutely. Yes. So true. It's, It's very well put because adrenaline comes in so many form factors for people. The importance of adrenaline is if it is encompassed in balanced lifestyle. There was no balance in my life whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so I craved adrenaline at all times. And then again, reflective in the career path that I chose. Mm -hmm. And not just that, but just the behaviors that I had. And yet, again, without any balance, adrenaline is the most dangerous drug there is because you can't get enough of it. And the neural pathways within your brain shape and form in early years And if adrenaline is the predominant chemical that's flowing through your body that you require, just like sugar, for so many kids, it can be very detrimental because there are highs and lows Mm -hmm. and those peaks and valleys from my experiences can become detrimental to who you are as a person. Again, something else that that I was not aware of as a child, but was made aware of, especially in the last 15 years is the family history within my mother's side of the family. There was a lot of depression, 60% uh, DNA and 40% environmental. 
And so those struggles were part of my composition, my DNA as well. And I, and I was not aware of that, but yet I was having those highs and lows at such a significant rate that I was always looking for that adrenaline and that escape. Is there anyone who doesn't suffer from depression? I mean, post COVID, I don't think anybody can really look at themselves in the mirror and not understand what depression is after Correct. this. So you're wise in your statement in that acknowledged by the medical community, every single human being experiences a form of depression throughout their life. They liken it actually to the common cold. There are different forms of depression. Mm-hmm. And some are more publicized or more, dare I say, glorified in movies. But depression is real and everyone is throughout their lives will experience it. And sometimes if it's prolonged and it can be for years for people, that's, again, that's where hopefully those people are in an environment where they can get the help that they need because it can become very severe. And and we've seen this in COVID, we've seen the effects on not just the adults, but the children. I have a 13-year-old daughter mm-hmm. who's spent, I'll say, two-thirds of the last year and a half in her room in virtual school. And albeit she's very fortunate to go to a to a, a good school and being a very small class, etc. The reality is that her social life is non-existent. And mm-hmm. at the age in which she is, all of those children are suffering. And it's up to us as the adults to not just recognize, but to make sure that we provide them with the outlet to speak to somebody who is a professional to help them, to let them know that it's okay to feel sad. As a, on the contrary, as a matter of fact, it's important that you feel sad and it's important that you reflect and share that with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So wise statement. You joined the military and it's at a time in Canada's history where suddenly we are involved in conflicts overseas. So tell me about that time. I know some of it, but not very much. My father, being a fighter pilot, he was obviously part of the officer corps. My uncle was as well. And so I had an understanding of how the military kind of broke down as far as structurally. And so my intention was to join the officer corps So in in 87, when I went and did the aptitude test and training and signed up for a program at the time, which was the officer cadet training program. And at the time, the government was transitioning from liberal to conservative. And the program that I was signed up to be, which was that program, OCTP was, was the name of the program, it got delayed for 18 months. And so I was confronted with a, I guess, a scenario where I had to choose. And they basically said, you can wait for 24 months. I was 18 years old. And again, as you now know a little bit of my story, I was running, looking for a way out. I was going no matter what. So for me to stare at two years waiting was not an option I was comfortable with. So they, the recruiter said, phone me up after the first month and basically said, okay, you can join anything. You've done your aptitude test. And I was a math kid. So I was really in tune with numbers. And out of all of the things that I could have chose, I chose the infantry because for the obvious, the adrenaline, the opportunity to be at the tip of the spear, to climb mountains, to jump out of aircraft, to do all of those things just made natural sense to me. And I was an athlete. So within a month of me saying, okay, I don't want to wait. I was on an aircraft off to, in those days, Cornwallis for basic training. And then from basic training, 
to Wainwright for infantry training. So 12 weeks in basic and then 16 weeks in infantry training and landed in Calgary with a group of young men who survived that 26 weeks. Funny enough, one of your former interviewees, Mr. Lauren Ford being one of my closest friends, we had that experience together. We were, And then I spent the first couple of years in the military. Uh, we were off to the Middle East in 91 to Cyprus. All the Cyprus in the 70s was a serious conflict zone. It had, it had well settled down when we were there, albeit the Gulf War was uh, running in parallel. There used to be a joke internally in our unit that we were closer to the war than the other Canadian soldiers who actually got medals for attending the Iraq war, but we left that alone. That was the young ego of an infantryman in a, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we all came out with a Cyprus medal and we were like, okay, but we could listen to the gunships every night because we could see them off the coast. But, but yeah, so that first tour and experience I had really wasn't anything other than an opportunity to continue to train physically. Mm-hmm. And, and I was fortunate enough to be part of a very competitive team of five personnel team chosen to represent Canada there. And we competed against a bunch of other countries in something called the military skills competition and, uh, and won that. And it really helped propel my career after that because it was early days. I was the only private on that team. And uh, from there, I got identified as a person who was f- mission-focused, team-focused, and driven and it propelled me quickly into junior leadership courses where I did very well in those courses, got promoted, and then was selected to uh, be the battalion commander. So 800 people in a unit and the first battalion, if you will, of, I was a battalion commander's right hand. So his signaler, his driver, his 24 and 7 person. And that really brought to light for me, I'll say the opportunity lost because quickly I was thrown into working with him to understand strategy. And in the NCO ranks, you work your way up the non-commissioned side, but at the tactical level. And it's the young officer cadet or second lieutenant or lieutenant that comes in in a platoon first, and then a company, and then a battalion. As they move up in ranks, they're on the strategic side. So they're making those strategic decisions and the tactical operations are done by the non-commissioned sides. For uh, me being in that scenario in such a young age, I was 22 years old working with the gentleman who ran the whole battalion, being exposed to strategic um, operations and being part of actually decision making. I was extremely fortunate to work with, at the time, Dave Pentney, Colonel Pentney, who was the battalion commander. He had just come from the commando, from two commandos, special forces. And uh, so he had said to me within about three months of knowing each other, you need to go to officer school because a strategic thinker, you can do the tactical, but you're very strategic. And I really didn't have the confidence yet at that age or the understanding of what that meant, albeit I appreciated being in a scenario where he would ask me, so I'm thinking about putting company A on this flank. What do you think the effects are? What's the information that we're going to digest to understand how to move forward with this scenario. And so I was getting exposure in a a space at such a young age that ultimately helped me as I grew as an adult, especially in my, in the corporate world, when I transitioned into senior executive positions, which if you look traditionally military members, when they transition out of the military, most non-commissioned members would not 
be in a position to become a senior executive in a publicly traded company. You don't have the education, nor would you have the strategic experience because yours is tactical operations. Not One's not better than the other. They're just very different. Mm-hmm. And aligning yourself with your own personal um, skill sets, I always say, what do you like to do? And what do you do well? If you can match those two together, you will have a successful career in whatever it is that you do. And yeah, as I mentioned, I always have a hard time saying Colonel, or sorry, Dave Pentney, because we've been friends now for 35 years. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. I just saw him a couple months ago, because he is, you always, you recognize and salute the rank and some, and, and often, unfortunately, not necessarily the man, but in his case, he is both the rank and the man. He had a huge influence on me and recognized that I should be, or I should be looking to go in that direction. And I kept saying to him, I've been two and a half years in. Lauren had just went to two commando. And again, that was the only special forces at the time we didn't have. That was the only units that we had. And he said to me, you should go on to phase two. So how it works in the military is if you're a non-commissioned officer and you go as a junior NCO. So once you become a master corporal, you could, if you're identified within, let's say the top three to five in your peer group, you can transition into officer training, which Mm -hmm. the program had been shut off for me as trying to get in as a civilian in a much quicker fashion. So you can move right into that because you've already have all of this training. And, and I went back at him and said, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I really want to go to the commando, sir, (laughs) because you came from there and you told me that that's the best in the business and that's where I should be. And so how about I go there? But if you let them know that I definitely want to transition into an officer school, that would be great. And so I, I ended up doing that, went up just like Lauren went and did the parachute course, which is the pre-qualification to even go to the regiment at the time, and then went to the commando. And unfortunately, during that time, it was in 94, I got posted there. But before I left, I went to Bosnia. And mm. It was a really strange time because Somalia had happened. So I was actually posted to the Airborne Regiment, to Commando, before Somalia happened. The posting message came, but it got delayed because Colonel Pentney had said, you need to go be in command of men in a theater of war. And at that time, from 91 to 95, it's a while back, but Yugoslavia as a whole was a war. Mm -hmm. We were wearing blue berets make no mistake about it in my first four four weeks we lost two two people and and it was it was a war where we were stuck in the middle supposedly trying to keep peace you can't keep peace in a place where they they're not actively engaged in that but that was a defining not moment but an opportunity for me as a young person to understand everything that you would expect from a humanity perspective a humanitarian perspective, the way in which I received the experience of being in Yugoslavia was unique in that I took what I had inside of me, which was that fear, although I thought it was fearless, and I I used that to my advantage. And so my first confrontation with bullets downrange being fired at you or experiencing death Finding, unfortunately, in those scenarios, in those days, it was mass graves and those types of things. All of those things that happened to me, I reacted in exactly the way in which you would want a a young leader to do, which was recognize the situation, triage it, and move forward. 
And it was robotic in its way. And I believed at that time that because I was fearless, everything that I was doing was not only acceptable, but it was looked upon as the right way, the only way. What I wasn't aware of was there would be a profound effect on me, especially as I got into my mid-30s, late 30s, and emotional intelligence took over, which is usually about the right time for a man, or let's face it, some men don't ever get emotional intelligence, but it, let's just say generally that men experience at that time. And, and, and again, that would come back to, to really change who I am. But the experiences there did shape me. And then that led me into coming back off to Petawawa into commando until unfortunately in 1995, the Airborne Regiment was disbanded from the affairs in, in, in Somalia. Mm -hmm. That too shaped me as a young man because of the obvious. You you'd work to get to somewhere, you get to the pinnacle, you're there, you're doing the things that you want to do and suddenly it's pulled out from underneath of you by a political decision and again not having those experiences at that age in regards to the understanding of politics put everybody in a very difficult position families were affected in such a significant way that all of a sudden everybody had to pack up and move in a small place like Petawawa, I was living with a very close friends of mine and their kids. I was living in their basement at the time. The street I lived on, there were 12 houses, seven of them were for sale in Petawawa. So wow. it's not, it was not, it was very difficult. And it, it was difficult in the sense of, I felt like my country was ashamed of me because we were told that we were wearing maroon berets, the signifier of the special forces at the time. But yeah, it was a very difficult time. People looked at us from the outside. And I remember my mother saying to me, my God, you're, that's not who you are. And people were calling us racist and all of these, these slanderous words. And, and so it was difficult. And they ended up disbanding those units. And then I transitioned out into the, basically the same unit, but we went out into our sister regiments or our mother regiments, if you will. So PPCLI, the RCR, and the Vendus being the three infantry regiments, each commando was represented by one. So two commando was predominantly guys from the PPCLI. So we went out into Edmonton and called ourselves the Parachute Company. And then we went through a really defining moment for the Canadian military because we came there with our heads hanging low with the public feeling that, or at least we felt that the public looked at us in a way that we had done something so fundamentally wrong and that we were not good people to being hidden on a base for a year and a half by the government and the government telling us, okay, you can't wear the clothing that you earned, those tattoos that you guys have that signify your service for that unit. Everything needs to be hidden and covered. You can't speak. All of those things were happening to us. And we're young. That in those formative years, it's very difficult. It takes, it eats away at a man's confidence and and puts chips on people's shoulders. And there are still people that I served with in the commando that men in, in the PCLI parachute company that were that still have chips on their shoulders from that day. They they haven't been able to go past that. I, I pass no judgment whether they, you know, why. But it really did shape a group of people 
in a way where, you know, there's been suicides out of those groups of people that I've served with. And a lot of it comes from not just those experiences in theaters of war, but from how you are made to feel and the level in which the scrutiny that was, was placed on you. And yet, as just like in society, the cream rise always. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but my military experience was not, it shaped me as a man, but more profoundly, it really pulled out the traumatic events that I had experienced as a child. Those were who I, that's what underpinned who I was. Mm. And yet I had many experiences on the military side that were, that I worked through with my psychologist. Ultimately, the foundation of who I was, the inability to address those traumatic events as a child, those specific events. There was one other event where a very good friend of mine at 13 was was severely burned. I was there. And it, and so all of those things though really shaped me. And so it's my, my psychologist said to me after we got to know each other well, and we wrote, they say my story. And she said to me, think of it like a cocktail. And so you have all of these traumatic events as a young person that happened that aren't addressed. You add more to that as an adult. And then you add the events of what was happening in the military. Oh, and by the way, here comes the perfect cocktail because you have depression in your family. And so you've had that in you your entire life. And so fear, flight, fight, all of those things were all they're, they're burning up inside of you. And so they were, it, it's interesting because the military ultimately pushed me as a person emotionally to a point where I had no choice. I needed to address those if I really wanted to stick around and be on this planet and be a contributing member to my family with my wife and my daughter, because all around me, pieces were falling apart. And especially in my 40s, again, more suicides of gentlemen that I'd served with. And they were very similar to me. They had those, not just those military experiences, but the ones that shaped them when they were young. And one of my questions is, what was the event in your life that had the most profound impact on you? And you have this menu of (laughs) events in your life that one could identify, but I'll let you identify what that is for you. Being fortunate enough to have been exposed to what you're doing and listening to all of the interviews that you've done. Mm. What I tried not to do was preempt my responses. There are two events that really shaped me. The first one is what so many people get, you know, have that experience. And that is the, the birth of your child. And that, that event on all levels shaped me. It pushed me, especially as she was in her very, in her infant years, it pushed me to realize that I needed to be better if I was going to be the father that I wanted to be. And I knew the father I wanted to be because my father was gone all the time. It was a forcing function of nature, of the reality of life. He was, mm-hmm. he was a pilot. In those days, you know, my mom stayed at home. My dad worked. He was gone. And so I wanted to be a dad that was there. And, of course, I lost him so young. So I didn't have that experience. I had fantastic godparents who were there every step of the way. But there is no replacement for a child's parent. And so, yeah, 
that shaped me because it propelled me into a place where I wanted to understand how to have a balanced life. And in order to have a balanced life, you have to understand or you have to set your priorities and you have to be organized. You need to plan ahead. You need to expect the unexpected in a balanced life and always maintain a positive you know, attitude, a mental attitude. And I didn't have that. I had no mental health at all. I had physical health. So the birth of my child combined with emotional intelligence bubbling over where I could be on an aircraft flying somewhere in my business world. And for the first 20 minutes of my flight, I would be in tears and I didn't know why. Mm. And it started to happen more and more, especially after my daughter was born. And so that's the first of, first of two things that really shaped me. And then the second one, so it, it's the one where I would I have to pause only in the sense of there is no right way to say it, but to put it in a format where people would understand that I got to a breaking point in my life emotionally because I realized that my world was falling apart. But the only way that I realized it is because my wife was there to put her hand on my shoulder and say to me, it doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter what happened to you. I make no judgment. I'm here for you. And that was a defining moment for me only because I was at a very difficult time in my life, a very difficult place. All of those things that we briefly talked about had bubbled to the forefront. I wasn't seeing a psychologist yet, but I felt like I couldn't run away. And I started to feel like I had no hope. And it was a mental game that I was playing because I could have a conversation with somebody, but inside and in my head, there were things moving at such a prolific pace, memories, emotions. And like I said, I would have no control of where or when all of a sudden I would feel emotional where I just needed to let go. And I was embarrassed by it. I was afraid of it. And my life truly was falling apart. And so it was my wife's ability to recognize it and then to be there and just to say, it's okay. We got to, you've got to get healthy, but you've got to be ready to do it. And that was six years ago now. It really did shape my life. And so on the exterior, I left the military. I was in the business world. I was a senior executive in a publicly traded company. And if you were looking on the outside, you'd say, wow, what a fantastic life this person has and so successful. And the reality was that was as far from the truth as you can imagine. I have this image of a train that's hurtling down the track and your past running alongside and finally catching up with you. Yeah. And dare I say, as they say, when you look into the tunnel, is there light at the end of it or is it coming at you? Mm -hmm. In my case, my life was a tunnel. I couldn't see anything on the outside. And yet, like I said, for all anybody looking on the outside, there were definitely cracks and people were saying that some people that were close in my inner circle of friends were saying things to me, but I wasn't listening. Again, finding that place where all of a sudden I started to feel what they call hopelessness. 
where you wake up and you feel like you have no hope because it won't go away. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you mask it with alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, whatever it is, it's not going to change unless you address it. But ultimately, yeah, that those two moments, those are the um, defining moments for me as an adult because it allowed me to be fearless, to go forth, to work with somebody. And it, and it was not an easy process as far as even identifying a psychologist. I worked with a psychologist for a couple months, but I, it didn't. she didn't match with me. And I didn't mm. feel I could tell her everything. And then the second uh, woman, but a wonderful person who ultimately between the support and the teachings that she has given me and my wife, there's no looking back. And now that word balance actually has some semblance or meaning in my life because it's what I strive for. Mm -hmm. We have process in our life to give us some sense of calm and a, a path forward. So one of the things that this roadmap has given me working on the psychological front is an actual opportunity to achieve balance and balance for me is underpinned by five or six pillars the first one is mental physical and spiritual health and again the mental health i liken it to I've got a graduate degree, so from a mental health perspective, I'm probably in grade five right now, maybe grade six. You know, <laughs> I'm working in the juniors, but the physical side, I've got a graduate degree and I still do because it's always been something I've done. And that's just years of practice, et cetera. Spiritual health, I grew up in a Catholic home, a Protestant Catholic home, going to both sides, denominations, and was a Protestant at the start and then became a Catholic. But spiritual to me really is about the love of yourself and love of humanity. Ultimately, I don't look to man or its institutions to provide me with the way forward. I personally pray every day, but yet I don't need to go to an institution in a traditional sense. I look at those three as the key pillar because if I can love myself first, which means for me, saying no when I need to. And I think that if, if I can love myself, then I can actually go out into the world and affect change and do things for others that make me feel like I'm contributing in a way. The other piece of loving myself I've learned is, and it's very difficult, is not to compare myself to others. I have to accept who I am in order to do that, I can't compare myself. And I think the other one, um, the final one for me is be present. And I hate, I used to hate when I would hear that because I didn't understand it, Linda. I really understand when somebody said, be present. And yet now it's everything. It's what you and I are doing right now. I'm completely present. There is no exterior noise. I'm here, I am engaged and I came here prepared. Mm -hmm. And that the minimal that I should be doing to help us get to where it is we want to go. And I should mm -hmm. approach it that, that way. So that's the, the first pillar. And then they, as I mentioned, they go in order. The second one is family for me. I always believed that family was who I grew up with. And in actuality, family is who I surround myself with in my day-to-day -day moving forward. And I can choose to identify 
who it is I want in that circle. And whether they are blood or not, there are a set of rules and boundaries which need to be recognized. And there is a commitment that those people in my circle need to be aware of that I'm looking for from them because I've made a commitment to be mentally healthy and to love myself. And if they're not willing to take steps to be in line with what I'm doing, then I simply do not want them in my circle because I don't have time and time is everything for us as we get older. I don't have time to continue to use emotional intelligence to combat their challenges. So if they're going to be and they want to be in my circle, then I make it apparent to them, this is what I expect from you. And I, as I said, whether they're blood or not, it doesn't matter. And that's really helped me understand or define what family is to me. That's a tough one for people, I think, to be able to create those boundaries. Again, going back to the image of the arena, some of the people who are our harshest critics are our family. You are so right. And it was a process, I would say, to the first 18 months in which I worked with my psychologist, it was very intense. So I would do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I was working, but not really. I was working on that. That was my focus. And the most difficult of the next 18 months working was starting to build up that roadmap in which I wanted to address key things that were difficult throughout my life on the family front. Mm -hmm. The point where whether it's your sibling, whether it's your parent, it doesn't matter. These rules now apply. And like anything, the approach has to be one of crawl, walk, and run. But make no mistake, as I change my behaviors, I let them know And then I asked of them something. And if they weren't willing to recognize it and change their behavior, then the rules changed because the boundaries were different. I I no longer wish to engage with you, period. If you do not understand that this is important to me in my life, so don't bring me your drama unless you're willing to go get help to address your own inner peace. Because if you haven't, why would I inflict that on my family? The moment you bring your old story to me and haven't changed your behavior now affects me. And I have to ask, in my opinion, I need to ask my family, my wife and daughter, are you guys okay with me engaging with them to help them get through their challenges? Because it's going to affect how I behave internally in my house, right? Because there's an emotional drain. There's all of those things that happen to us when we're trying to help our family. And family, as I say to my daughter, family isn't defined by blood at all. On the contrary, we don't get a choice with whom we grow up or or the parents that bring us, but we can make a decision to move forward in a way that allows us to feel healthy and feel good about ourselves. And so that pillar, like I said, is a big one and one in which is super important in balance for me. And then the third one kind of underpins the other two, which is uh, business. And if you look at business, and we haven't spoke a lot about it, but when I transitioned out of the military, I was extremely fortunate to work basically in a military environment. So I worked for a publicly traded company in the United States 
on the information assurance or what we call now cybersecurity side. Mm-hmm. And as a young junior executive, and then became a senior executive for five years with a bunch of ex-military guys focused in the cryptography world, not cryptocurrencies, cryptography, math-based, protecting our information. And over that period of time working with those gentlemen, it really helped me transition to understand that I do not need to define who I am by what I have done. Mm-hmm. In other- I am not a military person. I am not a business person, a senior executive. I define myself exactly how you identified me at the start. I'm a dad and I'm a husband and I'm a lover of humanity and everything that is about that. I love people and interacting with people. I'm a social being. To say I'm an extrovert is an understatement. I love it. I I, I, I thrive with it. For me, it's everything because... If I can affect one person's life in a positive way or encourage them or guide them or be an inspiration to them, then I've done something good today. So the business side of me working in two publicly traded companies, becoming a senior executive, a vice president of a publicly traded company, running a large business within a business, transitioning out, being part of group of folks that built three technology companies out of Silicon Valley, building these companies, transitioning and selling those and jumping into venture capital. Again, like most things, look fantastic on paper. Wow, look at all those things that you've achieved. And ultimately, the value of business really is around making a difference and adding value. And business isn't just about making money. It's about charitable efforts. It's about giving time and mentoring. And that's something that I continue to do today. I try to take on at least two folks a year where I mentor and they come in life. I don't look, they come to me. But the business piece ultimately gives you some tools. And one of those tools is money. And therefore, financial is kind of my fourth pillar in balance because in order to have balance from a financial perspective, you need to be in control and you need to have options. And to do that, if you manage your capital appropriately and you're fortunate enough to have been in a position to make some money, it then gives you the capability to have options. It will propel you into a place where you can sit back and you can take a break and you can focus on what's important to you. And then the last one is the one that I joked about on the extrovert side, but really it is about social, right? It's about having that network of people that you trust, that you enjoy being around, that trust you, that look for your guidance, opinion, controversy, (laughs) anything, but in the sense of challenging you, all those things. But the social component of balance is so important. And I do believe that COVID has provided us a new way I find it a positive. There is a new way for us to not be disconnected, to stop texting, to do what you and I are doing, which is this is what we're able to do, but we can now use this. There's no more excuses why you can't call somebody who lives three hours away from you in a different time zone on a video conference and see each other smile Mm -hmm. or cry or laugh or whatever that is. And yeah, I think that's ultimately the one where if I got the first four in a place where 
it's very manageable, then ultimately the social network from a balanced perspective benefits because now I can engage in a way where I am present and where I love myself now. And I couldn't say that for most of my life. I never understood it, but mm-hmm. now, um, now I'm in that place. You would be described as having had PTSD. Correct. It was described as chronic PTSD. So it's decades of traumatic events compounded upon each other. And so especially those first 18 months of work that I did with my psychologist, we wrote my story. And really mm-hmm. those were, if you can imagine that we're talking to each other today, but for decades when I would talk to somebody, something, a memory could come at me right away in my head and I could see it. In my case, there were 18 stories that I needed to write with my psychologist so that I could understand how to deal with them. Because the moment, and they came in order, actually, the most profound stories, and it, it not is not necessarily, as some may think, um, from the military side at least, that it had to be related to death or to something of horrific experience that you may see in a movie. It's not that, at least from my experiences, they weren't that way. They were in there, but the stories that affected me profoundly that I couldn't control, those come at you the most frequently, and I didn't know how to deal with them. And that's where the fear came from. So when they would come to me and I'd be having a conversation with somebody, I'd look for a way out. How do I escape it? I don't want to deal with it. I can't deal with it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to to feel that again. And that's what would happen. You'd start to feel it. So to write my first story took six months because each time I would start to speak about that thing that was always here, I wanted to run away from it. I could, I'd get sweaty. I'd get nervous. I could be there mentally. And eventually the idea is once the story is written, so I would dictate it, my psychologist would write it. Once that was done, you take that story and you bring it home and every day, for 45 minutes at lunch, I would read that story to myself out loud. And I even went to the point of using technology and identifying where that place was, where that event happened to me, found it on Google Maps, zoomed it up, and I would read it and look at it. And for the first about five weeks, I I couldn't get through that story because I would be sweaty, I would be upset, it would make me emotional, all of those things. And eventually it became a story. And that's where you needed to go so that your levels of emotions eventually even out. And then what's happening is you are rewriting the neural pathways in your brain from a fear perspective. And so when the next story came, I didn't actually have to physically write it anymore. I let it happen to me. And when I say that mentally, I let it happen to me. And it allowed me to move through it experience it, be there with it and understand that it won't last any longer than 15 to 20 minutes. That fear, that anxiety, whatever that is, will go away, but be there and embrace it. Enjoy that you have the opportunity to have that experience. And ultimately that effort, those efforts were rewarded because now I seem to be in a position, many experiences in life where tragedy will happen around me. I was, there was an accident a couple years ago, probably three years ago now, where I was with my daughter. I was waiting for her. She was inside doing some stuff in from a sport perspective. 
and a gentleman came around a corner on a motorcycle and hit gravel and flew in the air. Uh, probably did four or five flips. It was a really bad accident. Wow. And so immediately, I it was probably two blocks away. I jump out of the vehicle. I run across a highway, literally a highway. Cars have stopped and people are standing there, but they're looking at him. They're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. and so because of experience and understanding what needs to happen, you go right into that. You do. You understand what to do triage. And so you do the things that are required to do. To You call 911. You veer the traffic over here. You get me a first aid kit. And then I'm working with the person on the ground, right? And you're doing the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, the things that you learned and know intuitively. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you that story to talk about that experience of helping somebody. I tell you in that sense of as that experience hit me later that mm -hmm. day, next week, etc. What happened to him, the way that his body looked, all of those things, I'm not fearful of that anymore. And so it's an example of when you train your brain, when you change your behaviors, when you commit to that type of work, the results are profound. And now we're seeing this back to the military. In the special forces world is specifically where they are training soldiers from a mental health perspective before they go to a combat situation. So they're using virtual reality. They're using all of these different tools, working with psychologists to make sure that they're ready as they can be to experience what they're going to. If somebody were to come up to that and see somebody's body mangled and, and fix them, they would be messed up, right? Passed by a car accident when people are on fire people experience that and then they never lose it and yet i'm not saying i don't lose it it's just that when it comes to me i'm good with it my, my brain understands how to process it what's essential to living a courageous life understanding that courageous life for me is really about confronting fear ultimately the essential is the balance right mm. and and so for me Having that balance allows me to recognize the four key things that jokingly I've said to people for decades, which is freedom, food, shelter, and democracy. You probably remember it yourself, Linda, because I brought it up before when I was co-chairing some of the events that we had spoke about. Mm -hmm. Those four elements of what we have in, that we are so lucky to share in Canada ultimately underpin the behavior moving forward. So if you can confront your fear, and you have balance in your life, you can move forward. And if you can change one person's day by conversation, by smile, by encouragement, by sending a link to listen to this music, by confronting a difficult situation, ultimately all of those things allow you to live a courageous life. Hmm. It, it just speaks to how little courage is about those great big brave acts. Courage, I think, is very personal and mm -hmm. it's underpinned by balance. There's no way that we can be courageous people without balance in our lives, however you define balance. Mm -hmm. What impact do you want to have on the world? I've had it in some sense already because I'm able to have this conversation with you openly and whether two people listen to it or 2000, it really doesn't matter. But to be able to 
take that approach that I have around trying to change one person's life, ultimately it gives me the satisfaction that I think that I need, not necessarily that I want, but that I need. I always say about marriage isn't about what you want in a partner. It's what you need in a partner. And those things ultimately, if you understand what they are and your behavior is reflective of that path towards achieving those, then you'll have the impact in life that you want, right? I look at my daughter and I am fascinated by the experiences that she is having and more importantly, her ability to work through the challenges, whether it be through COVID or puberty, teenagehood, athlete, all of these things that are happening. But ultimately, I look at her and I say, because I made that commitment to become mentally healthy and allow me to achieve balance, it's exactly why I did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if there was a former or current member of the military, first responder who's listening to this, it's a brother and it's a sisterhood that unless you've been through it, you don't understand it. What would you say to that person who may be fighting those demons? And, and, and even now during COVID, there are so many people who are on the front lines of this pandemic who are going to come out of this with some serious challenges, having looked death in the face every day, what would you say to them about the hope? I would say that there is one person in everyone's life, no matter who you are, that ultimately is going to be there for you. There always is. And so, the example I gave before of having the experience of running into the, the accident and doing those things, immediately upon that experience, jumping back into the vehicle, calling my wife, that was my person. And mm-hmm. I shared it with her right away. And so for anybody who is working through difficult times each and every day, whether they be long tours overseas or here or wherever they are, you need to turn to that person and you need to to listen to that person and work with that person because ultimately, if you have support, you'll always have hope. It's when you don't believe you have support anymore or someone can't understand your experience or no one can, that people start to feel hopeless in that scenario. Mm-hmm. So that's that really is the key. Everybody's journey is different. The drivers behind our ability or inability to acknowledge and address what we are feeling, what we are fearing, is really unique. There is no one set way to address those because we all approach them differently. And unfortunately, as humanity has shown us time and time again, and as I've reflected before with losing friends and suicide, Some of us simply don't feel that there is a person to be there for us. And if that hope is gone, there are just certain people that will not be able to confront those demons. If you have that one person that doesn't care what you have done or what you've experienced, they're there for you. That ultimately 
is to, I think, the core to getting out of that state of mind. What would you do on your last day? Great question. I try not to be in an aircraft. <laughs> yes, I've spent a lot of my life flying around the world, <laughs> whether it be in the military or business, and with my family, because uh, my wife's family's from Italy, so we do travel and we <laughs> right. travel a lot. But yet I would, I, as soon as you said it, I thought, aircraft uh, over to Italy in the village that my wife's family, some of them still live there and enjoy a meal in the afternoon in the backyard of the family property that we have there with my family. That's what I do. It's not, yeah, I don't think, I don't think there's anything for me that makes me happier because I've got the balance. If you had an opportunity to have a conversation with somebody living or dead, who would that be? only pause because it makes me emotional because if I think of it I was seven years old when I lost my father hmm. and in relative terms that's we'll say it's more than 40 years ago Linda that's all I'm saying <laughs> but yeah no question I don't even have five minutes of memories with my dad I've said it hundreds of times probably I would beg to have five minutes with my father just to understand a little bit more about what what compelled him to do the things that he did and to in essence look in the mirror because I've been told by those that knew my father that I am very similar to him and yet I've looked up to somebody who I haven't who I never got to really know and uh, over time people become superheroes because we let them in our minds and so I'd like to know the hard things about my dad too and the bad things because that helps me understand that it's okay. What I've experienced and what I've done and things that I, I'm not proud of, I want to know that those things were there for him too. Hmm. Great question. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I do. The one thing that I would say is that what you're doing in a way is I believe one of the core steps in getting people to communicate more to ultimately help them in their mental health journey. And so I think the things that you're doing in your peer group in the community around the world that are doing these types of podcasts in their community, I think that we need to push these into uh, programs that are backed by government through mental health initiatives, because ultimately, the more that we communicate, the more that we listen to others, this type of forum has such a, it's a gratifying feeling. I, I didn't talk about it, but one of the things that I really enjoyed when I was young was drawing and I was heavily into drafting and then I stopped. I, life took over and two years ago I started again and I'm back into it and I'm now painting and I'm doing all kinds of art. And I often find myself I'll say almost all the time when I'm painting, listening to podcasts hmm. and listening to people allows us to have this feeling of maybe we're not all as weird as we think we are. And hmm. so, yeah, I commend you on what you've been able to do in regards to taking your own courageous journey, putting yourself out there. And now I turn it back to you to say, so take it to the next level. Go into your community and change change this. Make this part of what we're doing because if nothing else, 
I don't believe that the world, at least in the next decade, will have a sense of normalcy when it goes out the door with a mask on. And therefore, we will, as social beings, feel apprehension towards what we took for granted, which is sitting in a restaurant or sitting on a beach beside somebody that you didn't know or an aircraft. And so therefore, we need to take advantage of technology and communicate and meet and socialize. And I think what you're doing and others like you are doing provides us an alternate way of socializing. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast. And if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Do you know someone whose story I should share? I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to me via my podcast website, www.thearena-podcast.com or email linda at lindamclaughlin.com. I look forward to sharing my next guest story of stepping away from her dream career to create a more fulfilling life for herself and her family. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in the arena.